What's up, everybody? It's Mac, and we are back with another uh, uh, episode. You know, another episode. But we're doing. You don't know history hits the books, part two, if you will. And uh, I am joined by uh, returning champ, Dr. Brandon Jett, and we're going to talk about his upcoming book, Race, Crime, and Policing in the Jim Crow South: African Americans and Law Enforcement in Birmingham, Memphis, and New Orleans, 1920 to 1945. Uh, so, Dr. Jet, how are you? I'm doing really well. It's great to be back here with you. Well, I'm glad you came back on. And and everybody, this book, I've gotten a, a, a little teaser copy. It's very good. So, Dr. Oh, Jet, well, I, do, I do appreciate you writing a book that kept someone like me very interested. Um, because, you know, you know how it is. Sometimes you get reading and you're like, okay. Some, some of our history books, you were just like, we're going to close this one for a little bit. You push it off yeah. to the side and you pick up another one. Uh, but I've read this straight since I was able to get access to it. So this was very, I've, I've really enjoyed the book. Well, that's really flattering. Thanks for saying that. I've had a couple of people uh, who have gotten advanced orders. If you pre-ordered it, they came a little bit earlier, actually before I got mine. Um, and like two of my friends who who aren't academics uh, have read it and they're like, hey, this is pretty good. And I feel like there's no greater uh, praise than someone who doesn't really read history books all that frequently. They're like, hey, I could get through this and it was all right. Yeah, I mean, that's it. it I, one, I want to say I really like the kind of the premise of it, like taking three cities, three growing cities mm -hmm. uh, in the U.S. South to show kind of how the <laughs> you use the term professionalizing the force. Yeah. Uh, you know, to show how that affected the African-American communities in those cities and how those communities in turn, um, you know, utilize the professionalized force. Uh, to meet their needs or not meet their needs, depending on how you're looking at it, right? Yeah, yeah. It um, was a it was a, a tough decision to try and do three cities. I'm 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 a little worried that I could get dinged uh, by by some reviewers for not appropriately exploring all the nuances of each of the cities. Um, but I tried to make the point that uh, these are three southern cities that are very similar in a lot of ways. That that for the purposes of book are more important than all their differences. And I was also thinking when I decided to to do three cities, not that we necessarily care, but heck, uh, you know, when, when we do these historical studies, we'll say like, you know, I'm looking at Chicago, I'm looking at New York, or I'm looking at New Orleans or Memphis. But the, the larger point is kind of like, well, what's going on here will probably be replicated other places. Otherwise, who cares about a very esoteric topic in one place. So I thought, well, hell, if people can get away with it for doing one city and say that these claims are broadly applicable, why not just do three and then say, see, they're even more broadly applicable uh, because I've done three. Yeah, I mean, it, in let's face it, like Birmingham, Memphis, New Orleans. I mean, these are, you know, um, especially when you look at the deeper south, uh, but Memphis and, and Birmingham had huge, you know, they were huge into the labor movement in this almost the same time period. So, Absolutely. I mean, it it makes sense to do that. Um, and I, I thought, like I said, I thought it was like a, a really good idea because like you, you're, you're kind of covering all the, I guess the different facets of the South with those three cities, mm -hmm. um, you know, which is, which I think is important because the South isn't this big monolith as a lot of people like to paint it as, sure. you know, there's this, there's a lot of different moving pieces and what makes the American South. So um, yeah, but I mean, again, I think it was a great idea. And that's just coming from me. But no, let's let's talk about like what made you want to write this book. Um, you know what what kind of you know what was the idea of okay hey, 
this is this story's not being told, and we you know, and you should tell it. Yeah, I guess as as with most uh, historians, I started off trying to do a different project. Um, so my original idea was to to write a conduct a study that explored different kinds of racial violence uh, in the South and do a kind of quantitative comparison. So I, I studied lynchings for a while, and I think oftentimes we use lynchings as kind of a stand-in for, for racial violence as a whole. Uh, but I was curious, like, are interracial homicides, assaults, sexual assaults, do, do they all kind of follow the same ebbs and flows? Uh, as lynchings do, or or are there differences? I was assuming there was going to be differences. And so uh, I reached out to a bunch of different archives and I was looking for homicide reports or or any kind of like criminal justice records that, that I could maybe use. And so uh, I got some records from, from the Memphis archives uh, or Shelby County archives, uh, and there were these homicide reports. And as I was reading through them just to kind of see what was in there, I noticed a couple of really interesting things to me. Um, there were a ton of cases uh, of African Americans calling the police. There were a ton of cases of African Americans acting as witnesses um, in homicides of engaging the police. There were a bunch of examples of African Americans who were accused of murder surrendering themselves to the police at police headquarters. Uh, and so everything I knew about Jim Crow police forces uh, was, was really bad and it remains bad. Um, but I just couldn't bring myself to really understand why, with, with, with all the brutality and racial discrimination on the enforcement of Jim Crow that, that police officers undertook in this, this period, why in the world would, would an African-American who's accused uh, of, of murdering someone walk into a police department? Why would you call the police? Um, so it seemed like something that was really fascinating to me that, that maybe was, was underexplored uh, in the historical literature. So. That's really what kind of piqued my interest initially in this. So I didn't set out to write a book on race, crime, and policing in the Jim Crow South. That's certainly where I where I ended up based on what I was finding in those, those archival collections. Well, I mean, that's that's interesting that you it wasn't it, it seems to be like the, the the you know how historians do it. I'm going into it, going into my research, looking at one thing, and it's like, oh, this is something you know different. But like the you know your research took you that way. Um, yeah, but, my advisor was a little off put at first because, uh, you know, a lot of times when, when you write books like this, um, you've got an idea and you kind of sell yourself on this idea and then you say, okay, I'm doing something completely different now. Uh, kind of like, wait, <laughs> what? I, you, you totally misrepresented yourself, but, um, I got a lot of support along the way, um, because I think it's, it's, it's a good argument and it's a good story and it's one that I don't think a lot of people. Yeah. I mean. Support. And this this is something that we need to start having this conversation. Um, you know, when you were on last time, you know, we talked a little bit about the, you know, well, quite a bit about the civil rights movement and how, you know, we saw the militarization of the police really pick up, you know, uh, pick up pace in the late 60s and, and going forward. Um, and we see that, but it's to really understand it, we, we should know about the history of this, right? Like, um, like where the professional police uh, started yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, again, you know, we, we spoke about before that, you know, the Pennsylvania State Police was only started to break unions, you know, and we mm -hmm. saw, you know, we see that in these three cities, we have this professionalization, and it's there to keep up that racial status quo and supporting segregation. Um, yeah. You know, I, so I think what I hope people get from this time period, the reason I chose like 1920 to 1945, which I think I've 
I've had a couple of people reach out to me and be like, why did you pick those those years? And I think in a lot of ways, I wanted to look at what what I think is really one of the first kind of periods of militarization of the police and expansion of the police, at least in, in these southern cities and in, in a really robust way, was in this 1920, 1930s, 1940s period. Uh, it's this really interesting moment where, where there are a lot of, of people, Black people, white people, and even some immigrants moving into southern cities. We often talk about the Great Migration as something that happened uh, from southern migrants moving into northern cities, but southern migrants also moved into southern cities. Um, and so at the same time that all these people are coming into these cities, like even a place like Birmingham had something like 3,000 people in 1880. By 1930, it has like 300,000 people. So these cities are growing incredibly rapidly during this time period. And so uh, as all these people are flooding in, you also have this spike in crime. And I know that, that crime can in many ways be a social construct, but even if you look at homicides um, and assaults and things like that, things things are really escalating. Um, and there's also this concern with crime during the Prohibition era and, and uh, the kind of escapades of people like, like Al Capone. Uh, people are concerned about crime um, in, in new and really important ways. And so I wanted to kind of explore this story of policing and, and how communities are dealing with this concern of crime in this 1920s, 1930s period. So I think in a lot of ways, what we see in the 1960s um, in 1970s and 1980s really has its roots in this 1920s and 1930s period. Well, like you already mentioned, uh, you know, the, the archives in Memphis, but where where were some of the places that you went to, you know, to kind of help you flesh the book out? Yeah, so uh, I went, I, I had this really kind of great and exhausting summer research trip where uh, I drove, so I was in Gainesville, I drove to um, Birmingham and spent about two weeks there um, going through their uh, public libraries, archives. They have great collections and great archivists there. Um, they had a lot of grand jury indictment records. Um, so not arrest records, but grand jury indictment records, which were really great because they had uh, witness testimony um, from individuals. So as opposed to the police reports that I was using in, in Memphis, that was kind of a, a police officer's summation of what people were telling them. These were, you know, as best as we can get, the kind of words of the actual people who were involved in some of these cases. Uh, so that was 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 a lot of fun. It's 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 a little grueling to just sit there and like make copies and scans of things for like two weeks, but I got a lot of great stuff. Um, and then from there, I went up to Memphis and spent about a week and a half there, kind of finding archives, going through um, their collections that they have at um, Shelby County Library. Uh, they've got a lot of papers um, from local politicians and things like that. Uh, a lot of the stuff was digitized for me. Uh, by, by some really great archivists. Vincent Clark uh, at the Shelby County Archives digitized a lot of the sources and just mailed me uh, a flash drive, which was really cool. And then I went down to New Orleans and did a similar thing. So I had this cool trip, kind of a triangle around uh, the kind of deep south in that Mississippi Delta area uh, in one summer. And then, of course, I went to Washington, D.C. to the National Archives and Library of Congress and um, looked at the NAACP papers and, and some other things. Well, I mean, that's not just a good trip. That's like a good eating trip, too. Fantastic uh, eating trip. Yeah, you know, I mean, you hit Memphis and then New Orleans, like, yeah. Um, not trying to sell Birmingham short, but I haven't visited there, so I haven't gotten to taste the food, but Memphis I'm not as familiar with, like, Birmingham cuisine. I do love Birmingham uh, as as a city. It's kind of, like, nestled in these these hills, kind of the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, which is really pretty and really nice. Uh, I mean, I got a buddy from there, and he loves it, so. Um, but, see, I, I... Let's jump into the book, right? Sure. Like, um, I, on in the first few pages, uh, you wrote something, right? And it, I need you to kind of explain this to me, right? Uh, 
what does it mean to be over and under policed? Uh, I thought that was a great sentence when you wrote it. And I, I was sitting there taking notes and I'm like, that's that's something I need to ask about. Yeah, good question. Uh, to be fair, I'm not the person that came up with that. That that idea has been around for quite some time, um, at least in academic circles, I guess. Um, but the idea in, in black communities in, in the Jim Crow period and even after the Jim Crow period is that they are both under and over police. So over policed in terms of um, being arrested for minor offenses. Uh, if you think back in the Jim Crow period, things like vagrancy or not being able to, to prove that you had a job, you could be arrested for that. Um, or like drunk in public, um, public intoxication, or even today, if we think about uh, like nonviolent drug offenses, um, so marijuana arrests and things like that. So over-policed in that regard. Um, and then the flip side is, is under-policed, under-policed in terms of like these major issues, think of, of, of homicides. Um, there's this really great and very long book called Homicide. Uh, it's written by David Simon, who, who did uh, The Wire. Um, and he, he kind of goes around with the Baltimore, I think it's a Baltimore homicide uh, unit for a year, I think. Um, and he would always say, you know, if it's, if, if it's a black guy who gets killed by another black guy and, you know, they're, they're involved in the drug trade or they think they are, it doesn't really raise that much concern. The cops aren't going to expend all of their energy on it. They're obviously concerned a little bit because they want clearance rates, but it's not something that really rises to the top of their list of things to do. But they had these other cases. I think he's, he said they called them red ball cases. So like if a suburban white woman was killed, all of a sudden, like that's that's news. That's a big deal. And all of the resources available uh, at those police departments are going to go towards um, solving that, that particular case. So kind of over police for some of these minor offenses that are often seen as tools of social and racial control. Um, under-policed in terms of some of these larger issues um, that, that, in many cases, the Black community would like to see more done about. Yeah, I mean, I think that's still an issue, uh, you know, in a lot of these uh, communities, um, because, I mean, we're, we're seeing, you know, you know there, there are African-American and, and people of color that have been arrested for minor drug crimes that are going to jail for 20-plus years. Uh, but then we get a largely lily white crowd that, you know, storms a Capitol building and they might get six months of probation. Sure, sure. Yeah. And that, that, that seems kind of out of touch with, with the way that, that we would assume the criminal justice system works. Uh, but in a lot of ways, it, it, I don't think the criminal justice system works in the ways that, that people used to think it did. And I feel like we're a little bit more aware of that right now. Um, even if you think about this, this case with Bill Cosby, like yesterday, right? All of a sudden people are kind of saying, wait, what, what happened here? How, how is he now out of prison? Um, and so I think in a lot of ways, people are more aware of the, the problems and the flaws in the criminal justice system than maybe they were in like the nineties, at least uh, in terms of my understanding. I mean, that's, that's how I would say, uh, you know, I, I agree with you there because I, you know, for me, I think what the. You know, what I noticed when I was going to school, you know, like because I'm the old guy on a campus, right, was the the Stanford swimmer case mm -hmm. that like really brought a lot of that home to a lot of my fellows, you know, my my, my friends and stuff. They're like, how does that happen? Yeah. You know, <laughs> and yeah. it's, you know, and then you have you literally have lawyers arguing about, well, he's so rich, he's not used to being held accountable for his actions. It's like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that that's not. That's not a thing, Your Honor. That is not a thing. You right, know, like, right. Um, so, so to just kind of bring it back to that idea of yeah. under-police and over-police. So the critique, at least in the Jim Crow South, was, um, you know, uh, the court system and the criminal justice system was really unconcerned with, with uh, black hom 
homicide. So if, if a black man was killed, it didn't really matter into the criminal justice system. And so that's the point I was trying to kind of get at is you know, for some of these, these smaller offenses, they're, they're, they're over-policed and it's problematic for some of these larger offenses. They'd like to see more done about that. Yeah, I mean, I, that, and that came across, um, you know, throughout the reading. Like, I, I thought you hit that point very, very well. Um, uh, and, you know, if, like for a lot of people, like I'm going to tell you right now, when you pick up this book and you start reading it, like it can be, um, you know, it, it's kind of like an, a slap in the face, not in a bad way, but like to get your attention. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like these things actually happen. And these are issues that we're still dealing with. Like it hasn't changed in, you know, the 100 years since 1920. Um, you know, these are things we're still trying to to get around, even with Jim Crow supposedly being done away with. Yeah, um, absolutely. But, um, you know, I'll tell you uh, uh, what I thought was uh, really good, too, was when you started talking about when the police department started getting vehicles and using those to uh, proliferate throughout their districts a, you know, a lot easier. Um, mm-hmm. And then they would just use that to, one, either respond to, like you said, to those crimes in white areas where, you know, we had to solve it or they used them to harass, uh, you know, black Americans in their, you know, in their part of the city. Um, now, was that, you, you know, with your research, was that uh, kind of like a means for some for these police chiefs in these three cities? Um, you know, did they go into it thinking, well, we have this technology now, um, you know, is it going to make our lives easier in, you know, essentially keeping that party line, you know, keeping, you know, whites and blacks separate, like, did they go into it thinking that it's going to make that part of the job easier? You know, that's an interesting question. I I don't know. I think the idea of segregation kind of paints this picture that there was this kind of invisible wall, right, where, like, yeah. there's a black community and a white community. I think it's a little more fluid than that, uh, especially in places like, like Memphis and New Orleans and, and to an extent Birmingham, uh, but New Orleans in particular. Um, so, so there was definitely interaction uh, yeah. between the white community and the black community, and in many ways, they're they're kind of segregated spaces for sure, but they were they were adjacent uh, to each other. So, um, I don't know if if police chiefs thought, hey, by introducing this automobile into our policing strategies, we'll be able to kind of firm up the wall more effectively. I think from from what I can understand is what they were really interested in is kind of being a little bit more present. Uh, so, as as I say in the book, they are constantly undermanned, underfunded, at least in their perspective. Uh, and so, instead of just having cops walking around on their beat or walking or you know riding on a horse or something like that, they've got this car now, and that'll allow them to kind of be a little more present, respond a little bit more quickly uh, to potential problems. And it's also kind of a PR move. Uh, the police departments look a little bit more modern. They look a little bit more effective. Uh, when they're able to present themselves in these automobiles. So I think it was was multifaceted. I'm not sure if police departments did everything with, with kind of Jim Crow in, in the forefront of their mind. Uh, they certainly did a lot of things with Jim Crow at the forefront of their mind, but um, it certainly made their job of kind of maintaining social and racial control a lot easier because they could be more on the present. They could move around a lot more quickly. Um, things like that. And, and the same is true with radios um, and, and, and phones. Uh, this allowed them to communicate more effectively. It allowed them to kind of move people into the spaces that they needed to be more quickly. 
Um, so I think a lot of those technological improvements were about kind of the PR behind it, but also about making it a little bit easier for them to do their job, whatever that, that particular part of their job may be, maintaining racial and social control or even responding to, um, you know, uh, an assault claim uh, by a white woman against a white man or something. Well, what were some of those things that the, the police did with Jim Crow in the forefront of their mind? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it kind of depends what city you're in. Um, obviously, there are some police chiefs and, and public safety commissioners that are a little more vocal um, and and kind of put their their um, views right out there. I'm thinking of Bull Connor, um, and we kind of know him infamously from the civil rights period in the 1960s with the, or, I'm sorry, the hoses and the dogs um, and kind of allowing the Klan to run rampant against um, freedom riders. But uh, he's also put in charge of public safety in Birmingham in the 1930s, and there are similar police chiefs and, and public safety commissioners in, in Memphis and New Orleans uh, who are, are pretty obvious and blatant about what they think their job is. And, and I think at, at one point in the book, I referenced a police chief in Memphis who basically says this is a white man city, um, and any black man who doesn't agree with us needs to get out. So, um, you know, I think a lot of the improvements were were improvements, I guess, depending on how you want to look at them, but at least the technological advance, uh, the adoption of militarized technology, like like guns and grenade launchers and, and tear gas and things like that, was was probably done with, with maintaining social and racial control at the forefront of their mind. Uh, but I don't think every single police officer went out every single day and was like, how am I going to enforce Jim Crow today? I think it was just kind of so much part of the zeitgeist that that is just kind of part and parcel of, of what they did. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, I think even in that time, uh, you know, let's let's, you know, I think a lot a lot of Americans have a, a problem with when we're talking about history, not looking at it through our modern lenses, right? Like that is right. that is something when we're thinking about history, we have to kind of like, I, it, it's difficult sometimes, but you have to put that to the side. But you know, the the inherent racism that I mean, honestly, almost everybody had some of it uh, in this time period. You know, sure. we can't we can't just say it was just the South. The North was every bit as racist, just in different ways. Um, you know, but like that that was just like how the time was people had those built-in uh isms already um and I, I you know i don't think that you know officers of these these departments went out daily looking you know to do that it's just something that they did anyway like it was already right. there you know well it's kind uh, of like today too right i mean you've got these kind of ingrained biases um that that people have and so you know when when police officers today go out do they think i want to go be a representative of a white supremacist institution i don't think so i don't even think they they kind of recognize that 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 is probably part and parcel uh kind of the role of the police historically and there are pretty convincing arguments that that, that continues to be one of the roles that they play but I don't necessarily think each police officer goes out thinking I'm going to accomplish the goal of white supremacy today, but it's kind of ingrained in yep. the institution and the systems and the way that our societies are set up and function. Um, so it kind of is part of the job, even if they're not consciously thinking that that's part of the job. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you and I both know that the police departments are, I mean, it's the, it's the state's uh, arm of force against the people. Like, that's, that's how I, uh, sure. They act now, um, 
they have be, you know, they are way over militarized. Um, you know, rather than looking like peace officers, they look like soldiers out there patrolling, you know, streets now. Um, you know, like Kannapolis, North Carolina, just bought two MRAPs. Why? Uh, <laughs> right, like, right. What do you need MRAPs in Kannapolis for? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think the difference about, you know, today and, and then in, in the Jim Crow period is they could be blatant about what they were saying um, and doing. And in many cases, they were. Um, so, for example, in the book, uh, there's there's a, a part of a chapter that looks at police crackdowns on labor organizers. Uh, and there's there's one meeting in Birmingham. I forget who put it on, but something like 30 percent of the entire Birmingham police force or something was outside of that meeting in in one meeting hall monitoring what was going on. So um, in a lot of ways, some of their actions could be seen as kind of explicitly done to kind of maintain these these, these racial hierarchies. Um, and so that's that's something I, I try to tease out in the book. I, I, I hope that I did that effectively um, because I certainly wanted to demonstrate the kind of myriad ways that police departments engage in activities in the Jim Crow period to kind of maintain. Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's um, you know, people like you already alluded to, you know, like the, the, the marches in Birmingham where, you know, they, they put the, you know, brought out everything, uh, you know, fully, you know, riot gear, police, the police dogs, the water hoses against the marchers, right? Um, you know, but we, we kind of see the, you know, we, we don't see how far back it goes where the police are, you know, used as a means of control, you know, yeah. not not of, you know, they're not, especially like now, I, I, I don't know if you ran across the statistics during your research, but I mean, less than like 10% of rapes are, are actually solved. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there's huge backlogs of rape kits, uh, huge backlogs of like murder cases that are, are going unsolved, but man, you know, their uniforms look a lot cooler and a lot better than what I wore in an actual war zone, you know, like yeah. it's it's shocking to me. And it, and it seems like it hasn't really changed uh, much from the time period you were writing about to now where like you they were getting cars, they were getting radios, they were, you yeah. know, like they're they're trying to stay at the forefront of all this in order to maintain control. Well, one um, of the things I was interested too when 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 I was writing the book is, you know, we we kind of we see the police in the Jim Crow South in the civil rights movement, and and they're these kind of armed, as as you said, the, the kind of armed wing, right, to kind of maintain the status quo. But what what I tried to kind of argue uh, was that that this didn't just happen overnight, right? Like the police just just didn't show up in the fifties and sixties with all this stuff. This had been something that had been building uh, for several decades, and I argue it had been building in response to this massive influx of African Americans and 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 white migrants. Uh, into these urban spaces in the 19-teens, 1920s, 1930s, and then this concern about criminal activity in there. And so uh, when you've got hundreds of thousands of people together, all of a sudden some of those old methods of social control, like lynching and, and extra-legal violence, don't really work as well uh, as, as perhaps they would have in a small rural town. Uh, and also city officials didn't want that to take place. It, it, it hurt their, their image and their economic uh, options to have uh, lynchings occur in their in their towns and in their cities, and so um, I really wanted to kind of tease out wh where did these armed police forces come from that Bull Connor could then use in the fifties and sixties uh, to be a kind of physical barrier to to African American advancement. Yeah, and I, here's another question I wanted to ask, just for you know when people 
by the book and it's mentioned a lot uh, i've noticed but what, what what is the new south like mm-hmm. uh you know in charlotte we have the history or uh, the museum of the new south right yeah and and i think that's something that you know we, we should kind of uh, flesh out for everybody yeah so the new south is is this idea uh i guess that also had some real kind of real world um kind of hit points but the new south was something that that southern boosters or people who were kind of promoting the South as a place for, for economic investment and improvement in the post-Civil War period. They wanted to argue that, that the New South was something fundamentally different than the Old South of, of slavery and, and plantation, kind of monoculture agriculture. Uh, and so the New South was supposed to be a place that was a little less kind of uh, racist, a little less tied to agriculture, more open to outside investment, uh, industrialization, um, financial institutions and kind of wanted to be more included in this this kind of industrialization process that was taking place in in the Northeast and the Midwest and places like Chicago and New York. Um, So the New South was supposed to be something that was different. Um, And and part of their pitch was, again, that the South is a safe place for advancement. Another part of their pitch is you don't have to worry about those pesky labor unions in the same way that you do in the North. and, and so as, as Southern city boosters are, are kind of advertising their cities to these Northern investors, it kind of looks bad to have a bunch of mobs running around killing people um, because investors don't like things like that. I'm, I don't really have much money to be investing in things, but uh, the things I read about what investors like is, is predictability. Yes. Right. They want to make sure that the places they're in are still going to be there. Um, and so there was a, a pretty big effort among kind of upper and middle class southerners, particularly in, in urban areas, but even in some of the smaller towns, uh, to really demonstrate that, that these weren't lawless places. Mobs wouldn't run rampant, that they had formal institutions of criminal justice uh, that, that could handle maintaining law and order uh, as, as problematic as that, that phrase is. Um, so that's really what the New South kind of encompassed, this, this new ideology about what the South was, uh, what its goals were, and perhaps most importantly, what is kind of economic uh, opportunities uh, or what economic opportunities the South could present to outside investors. Yeah, I mean, I, that's, I appreciate that. Because like I, for a long time, like I asked one of my professors when I was in school what the hell they meant by the New South. Yeah. Uh, because like, I'm just like the new, you know, this, it's the South, you know, like. Yeah. Uh, and they were like, no, no, here's, here's the why, you know, like this is yeah. why the new um well think birmingham right like birmingham didn't exist uh it again it had like three thousand people in 1880 um but by 1930 it had almost 300,000 if not over 300,000 people it was an industrial city it, it, it was a steel city um that really wasn't the kind of industry that that predominated in the south during the antebellum period prior to the civil war and so that that's kind of the embodiment of the new south yeah. something that's that's different economically um, and in theory, racially, right? Um, slavery is no longer the, the main driver of the economic system. Um, Atlanta was seen as, as one of the really big cities uh, promoting this new South Creed. So kind of low-key racist, but, but not as, as violent and, and, and problematic as perhaps the old South had been. At least that's the picture they're trying to make. Yeah, um, but uh, what I, I, less racist, um, yeah. <laughs> but um, this is this is one of the things that I found shocking was Birmingham, Memphis, and New Orleans 
didn't have a black police officer until after the Second World War. Um, this is when, uh, and one, I, I want everybody to know, Dr. Jet did a great job of fleshing out the not just the the population growth of cities that of the three cities in in this book, but also the growth of the police departments. Uh, you know, like you, you you let us know, like you know, at this point there were this many officers, and as the city got bigger, you know. They, you know, they became under, you know, more strained from, uh, you know, affluent whites that were like, hey, you know, we, we need more officers, right? So mm -hmm. they would, they got a little bit more money, they hired more officers, you know. Um, but I thought that was shocking. Not not one until after the Second World War. Well, there's a caveat to that, and, and I'm pretty sure it's footnoted. Um, so I'm in the 1920-1945 period. Prior to that, um, like in the late 19th century, there were African-American police officers um, on the police force in New Orleans. Um, but by 1920, those officers are being dismissed. Uh, there's a really interesting case in Memphis um, in 1917, per, per some agreement between Robert Church, who was a very influential black leader there. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but um, African-Americans could still vote in Memphis um, throughout the Jim Crow period. Uh, this was largely because of the the like political boss system. He his his last name was Crump. He found it useful for a while, so he allowed African Americans to continue to vote if they paid their poll tax and things like that. But there was a powerful voting block of African Americans in Memphis, and so one of the deals uh, in nineteen in in an election in nineteen sixteen is that okay, if we support you, you got to give us some some black police officers. So I think they had three um, in nineteen seventeen. They lasted about six months because they got in a shootout with white gangster um, in, in downtown Memphis. Um, and that obviously wouldn't fly over very well with, with the white public having armed black men. So they were dismissed relatively quickly. And then you don't see them uh, or black police officers reappear until much later. Um, after World War II. That's, that's just crazy to me. But um, what, was it, what was it like to write a book like this? Like um, when I talked to Dr. Thompson about his book, he was just like, you know, there were there were ups and downs, you know, like I was he's like, you know, I was pounding up, you know, page after page after page. And then I I had to stop, you know, it just wasn't coming. Easy. So what was it what was it like to write this book? Yeah, you know. It, it went I mean, if, if, not to sound too braggy, but it, it went fairly quickly. And I think because a lot of what I tried to do is is let some of the, the narrative kind of play out like I've got a bunch of examples of the kinds of interactions that African-Americans had with, with police officers. Uh, and so that allowed me to kind of get the juices flowing as I'm just like kind of summarizing what I'm reading in one of these police reports and then trying to kind of make it come together in some larger argument. So for those of you who haven't read the book, I talk a lot about African-Americans calling the police after a crime had been committed in their community. I talk about African-American witnesses engaging with the police, providing testimony, uh, providing evidence, um, or going to police stations to to give their account of either a homicide, an assault, or, or a theft. Um, and so as I'm just kind of reading these stories, it, it, it just gives me a lot of things to pull from. And so uh, that, that helped a lot. I think what was really tough for me is I'm trying to do something that I think is pretty nuanced here. I am not trying to say that the police weren't bad. And that's really something I don't want people to misunderstand. And I I think I do a good job of, of kind of illustrating just how problematic, racially discriminatory and violent uh, the Southern Police Departments were toward the African-American population, and that they were established not to serve, but to kind of monitor and control those communities. 
Uh, but what I also wanted to show is how seemingly powerless people can kind of extract some kind of service and interact with um, some representatives, let's say, of those institutions that are designed for their own subordination. So um, that, that was the hardest part for me, is kind of straddling this, this, I'm not saying the police are good, but I want to demonstrate how African-Americans were, were kind of negotiating these interactions with a problematic institution, because they did um, quite frequently, as, as, as I point out. So, so that was the real hard part for me, is kind of navigating that. The other really difficult part for me was um, to maintain this idea that by looking at intra-racial uh, crimes, which is the focus of what I look at um, for, for these interactions between African-Americans and the police, um, I didn't want that to make it sound like I was saying African-Americans are more inherently criminally inclined than their white counterparts or that white on black violence is not problematic and, and wasn't omnipresent uh, or an omnipresent threat in the Jim Crow South, it absolutely was. So. Um, for those of you who don't know, intra-racial crimes are crimes that are committed by people of the same racial background. So a white person committing a crime against a white person, a black person committing a crime against a black person. And so um, I decided to focus on, on intra-racial crimes, as I say in the book, because there's more of them. Um, most crime, regardless of racial background, is intra-racial. Um, that's true then, it's true now. Yeah. Um, and so there were just more examples to pull from, but I also wanted to find uh, a kind of lens through which I could look at interactions between white police officers and, and African-Americans that weren't as kind of bound up in notions of like racial solidarity, where as if, if, if a white person committed a crime against a black person, there would be some kind of sense of racial solidarity between the officer who's investigating it and, and the person who committed the crime. So I wanted to kind of look at something that was a little more, although not completely kind of removed from some of those appeals to racial solidarity. So those are the two hardest things to me is kind of walk this line um, of saying, yes, the police were, were just as problematic as every other scholar has said. Um, but at the same time, this is how the black community is kind of interacting with that incredibly problematic institution. Yeah, I mean, and I thought that was an interesting way to like kind of broach the topic because like me growing up, you know, uh, uh, you know, just with our public school history here, um, you know, Jim Crow was bad and that African-Americans, you know, chose not to interact with those institutions that uh, were, you know, were being discriminatory and being oppressive to them. Um, I didn't realize that there was the interaction, uh, you know, that there that you outlined in the book um, and how they used. Um, you know, those institutions to kind of uh, get what they needed, you know, to a certain point. Um, but uh, going, you know, going back to your, you know, when we talk about, and I, I thought that was an interesting distinction to make, you know, when we were talking interracial uh, uh, crime, you know, things like that. Um, that's, that's always a rough one to get over because especially now in, in this very politically tinged era we live in, um, you know, there are certain bad faith, you know, actors out there that like to use, you know, you know, uh, interracial crimes to to ignore those intra-racial crimes that that are happening. So I thought that was that was a very uh, uh, good distinction uh, that you that you made. Um, but uh, you know, what what is you know writing a book? I you know I can't imagine what it's like to put so much of yourself into one project. Mm -hmm. um, now, 
did you find this uh, like a kind of an enjoyable experience? Was it something that you're just like, okay, I did it now and I'm going to wait a few years for the next one? Or, you know, like how, how did you, like, how was it for you personally? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the bad things about being a, a historian of criminal justice, especially in the Jim Crow period, is that it's kind of all bad. Um, and you, you become a little jaded. Um, you know, it's, it's horrific and it's violent. And especially when you're looking at things like homicides and assaults. Uh, and so kind of constantly reminding myself that those things aren't normal. And, and I, I hope I never become too kind of comfortable talking about things like that. Um, and it's something I, I also have to remind myself of when I'm engaging with students. It's like they, they haven't been exposed to all of these things in the same ways that I have. So um, that's always something that, that, that is tough when you're kind of doing this kind of research. Um, and I'm a white man, so I can only imagine how, how difficult and, and kind of emotionally trying it, it is for scholars who, who aren't white men. Um, but I, I find it kind of a great intellectual experience. I like writing. Um, it's something I've, I've tried to do more of with like public pieces and shorter pieces. Um, I think it's a really great way to get your ideas out there. As I'm sure you know, we all have really great ideas in our head and you're like, oh my God, that's so brilliant. And then you try to write it and you're like, ah, it won't come out. Uh, and so I don't want to lose that. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying my best to, to get back out there uh, as quickly as possible. I've got another, uh, an edited volume uh, that's under review right now um, that looks <laughs> looks at uh, different kinds of, of, of violence that occurred in Texas in the late 20th century. Um, and then I'm working my second book, I hope, uh, if, if all goes well, we'll look at homicides in Memphis from 1917 to 1972 and the ways in which the criminal justice system is responding uh, to two homicides um, throughout that period. So I'm still kind of in that same area. Um, it's It's tough and it's grueling, but I find it fascinating and interesting and as you suggested, you know, everything today is, is, is really politicized, but a lot of that is, is focused on issues related to crime, violence, and criminal justice. And so I think it's kind of imperative that we continue to, to look at some of the roots of this stuff and continue to be publicly engaged uh, and have these conversations with historians and, and non-historians so we get a fuller idea of what's going on, what has gone on, and hopefully, with any luck, um, can kind of move the pendulum in the right direction. Well, I mean, I I think you did a great job with this book. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm gonna well, just let everybody know. I, I'm I'm on the cusp of finishing it. I didn't get it through. I didn't get through the whole thing. Um, but it's just been a great read so far, uh, and I, I really think you knocked it out of the park with this one. Um, Thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, I mean, it, it, again, this is a, you know, a, we to to understand what's going on now, we have to learn about this, right? Like, th like you said, this is the root, this is the base of of everything that we're we're trying to address now, um, and and I think, you know, you you walked that fine line, like you said, you were trying. Like, I just I thought this was a very good uh, look at you know, those those interactions between police and the people that lived in these cities, um, you know, and and how there's a lot that we can take from this book and, and you know, apply it now uh, to try and explain interactions between police and, and people of color now. Um, so I, I think the, job. if I could just very quickly, one of the things I found really interesting when I first started writing it, this wasn't really something that people were talking about, but um, 
so I kind of wrapped the book up with like final edits in June 2020. So right when when you know the defund movement is really probably at its pinnacle. Um, and as I was hearing the arguments that were being made about defunding the police and kind of um, putting those resources into kind of building up the community, in, in chapter two, I talk about uh, the way in which like the black middle class is responding to the issue of crime and policing in, in those Jim Crow cities. Um, and a lot of their arguments are very similar to the defund the police, but they, they're calling for like a removal of the restrictions placed on them because of Jim Crow, economic opportunities, investment in their schools, um, after school program, like all of a lot of the same arguments that are yeah. being made today. And I was just really struck at the persistence of those arguments um, and, and really disheartened um, at the fact that, that we are having almost the exact same conversation um, and and about almost the exact same issues 100 years after they, they were being articulated. Um, so that was both kind of interesting and also a little disheartening to kind of hear that, you know, these these arguments and despite all of the things that have been done and there have been some positive changes in policing and 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 obviously with the civil rights movement kind of breaking down some of those barriers, although a bunch of barriers remain, um, despite all of that, arguments seem very similar um, and the critiques seem very similar. Yeah, I mean, and that's, I mean, that's something. If the if the argument still stands after a hundred years, like maybe somebody listens. You know, I mean, what's the worst that happens? We actually enact these things, and it works. Oh, yeah. oh my gosh, you know, that's, you know, it's it's only going to to help people in these communities. Uh, you know, with you know, it's going to bring crime down. It's going to help people uh, get mental health services. You know, have after school programs. I mean, uh, you know, in Northeast Ohio, where I'm from, like it's pay to play sports now if you're in school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot of people can't afford for their children to play sports. Like, no, let's let's start funding some of those. Let's get people back into bands and fund art classes. Like, let's do all these things. Right, right. To give people an outlet. Like, it's it's yeah. that's not a bad thing. And they're also uh, just fantastic things. Uh, yeah. That we can all enjoy. I mean, it's not just about let's just stop people from committing crimes by having to play basketball or whatever but like i i love uh you know hearing bands and and having children who are engaged in in these activities i used to referee like uh basketball for um you know like middle school and and, and high school it's just cool and fun so yeah i think i was struck by those arguments and i think it's it's sad that, that that's the state we're in today and not much has seemingly changed despite all the progress in other areas um, so hopefully this book is a little illuminating in that regard and, and not, not useless. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, hopefully we can get things fixed. Um, and again, uh, I'm going to say it for the millionth time, but I, I really enjoy this book. Everybody needs to go out and buy this book. Um, and it's, it's uh, when's, it, when's it coming out for uh, the, the main push? Yeah, that, so the, the official publication date is July 7th. Um, although if you, you can pre-order it now, um, on lsupress.org, I believe it's a .org. Um, it's, it's, it's up there and they'll, they'll ship them. I've, I've had friends who, who have ordered them and they're, they're hitting their mailboxes already. Um, you can also go to my website, brandontjet.com and you can, uh, click on the different tabs. One of them is race, crime and policing in the Jim Crow South. Uh, and you can you can kind of place an order through me, and I'll happily sign one and 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 send it to you. Um, so you can do it in a number of different ways. See, there you go, everybody. Uh, July seventh. Go ahead, get out there, buy this book. 
Um, you're going to learn a ton. Uh, but Dr. Jet, thank you so much for coming on to, to talk about uh, the book. Uh, I always like having you on. Uh, you're yeah, a great well, interview. Thanks for having me again. Well, of course, of course. Uh, we're going to have to do a, a bonus episode of uh, You Don't Know History at the Movies, where we watch a movie and just rip it apart uh, for its core <laughs> history. Um, the first one I did was Black Hawk Down. So, yeah, yeah that was that was bad. Uh, that that I, is a. That I always a, joke that people who aren't historians will hate watching like historically based movies with historians. Will just ruin ruin all of it. Well, it's the same thing with military movies. You don't sit down and watch them with people that are actively <laughs> in the military either. Uh, so, like Black Hawk Down was a twofer for me. Um, <laughs> bad history, bad military stuff. Um, but no, we'll 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 have to talk and and find a movie because I always like I want to get one that's like in your wheelhouse, you know. All right. Um, and then we can just go from there you know uh well you know it's it's fun and it's it's something a little less serious which i yeah, think that'd be fantastic you know i think we all need a little less serious after the year we've had the year absolutely year, you know. but uh thank you so much for coming on again uh and everybody if if you if you like dr jet as much as i do get out there buy the book uh his website's actually very very it's a it's a good site i'm gonna say that Thanks. right now um it's it's very crisp very clean very streamlined i like it Thanks. um <laughs> but get out there, support Dr. Jet, uh, and support support your historians out there. Uh, they're they're in the they're doing the work, uh, you know. And God knows we need we need good historians these days, uh, especially with like what's happening in Texas and Florida. And ugh, I'm sorry, you have to deal with that. Uh, That's all right. Just one more reason to uh, support historians because we yes. need all the help we can get. Yes. Especially every- those in Florida like myself. <laughs> but everybody, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the episode and I will talk to you next week.